morning. <clears throat> Weeks back when Wendell approached me in a Sunday service and said there's about three or four uh, chapters yet we're going to cover in the reasonable, uh, not reasonable faith, excuse me, on guard, um, would you be interested in uh, coming in and doing the, the last one where you could sort of uh, take the time to to sum up, to uh, uh, deal with any loose ends, to add to things that you might uh, want to include, whatever we've uh, maybe missed, which is a massively big topic <laughs> on a multi-month series to come in and do all that. So my first, uh, my first uh, thought was, does he want me to do, learn a dance too, or? Yeah, you know, am I supposed to do a magic show up here? Uh, but the second thing was, um, how foolish is it to let me talk about apologetics on a wide basis, anything I want to say? Um, and so it's difficult for me to try and restrict myself today to anything that's uh, reasonably compact into a service. Uh, so I'm going to limit myself to... Uh, reiterating some of the importance of apologetic in the uh, Christian life and witness, and to uh, perhaps give some, ex some uh, testimony to how I've uh, seen uh, apologetics be dynamic in uh, evangelism and in helping Christians who uh, are wavering in their faith to really grab hold of the fact of the truth of Christian, the Christian faith. And then finally, because I'm the old guy of 50 years of doing this, I have a few simple practical suggestions when it comes to uh, believers approaching the issue of apologetics. So hopefully we'll get through that in a reasonable amount of time and I won't uh, get too far afield as I'm talking about this. <clears throat> Most of you have heard my uh, story so many times that I feel kind of embarrassed to go up here and repeat it, but for those of you who've come to the church um, more recently than the, the period of time I've talked about this or um, you've forgotten uh, what I've talked about, I do want to sort of talk about my experience because I think it illustrates the importance of having a solid apologetic and presenting the truth claims for Christianity in a reasonable, responsible way. I grew up in the church, a uh, church that some of you would be familiar with, and growing up, not counting my early years, uh, but once I was adopted in, into this Christian family that attended church and believed the faith, um, I always accepted it as true. I grew up believing it to be true without any question, as most or many people in the, uh, the church do. And I was never particularly uh, driven to, uh, to deal with reasons for belief, because I just believed it. And uh, I uh, went off to college when I got to that age, went to IU Purdue, where out of uh, the first year, uh, nine or ten professors I had, all but one of them attacked Christianity just in the nature of the course. It wasn't, it wasn't focused on religion or anything, but somewhere along the line they worked it into the particular discipline that they were working with. 
And I wasn't disturbed by that because I expected that and I had the assurance that somebody has the answer out there, it's out there. <clears throat> and uh, what did disturb me was listening to Christians try and respond to the professors. The world's worst reasons, you know, 15 lame brain reasons to believe Christianity is true. And most of them actually weren't even true. I remember one guy standing up in class and arguing with the professor that evolution was false because, uh, and Genesis was true because man had one less rib than woman. And so you just needed to count them, which I don't know where he got that or why he got that, but that was hardly a compelling, compelling reason. Another popular thing at that time was the story that was circulating about how NASA was plotting one day the trajectories so they know where the planets were for uh, future space, space exploration at, uh, 100 years from now and maybe even up to 1,000 years from now. As they were plotting this, they discovered that there's 24, hour missing, uh, there's 24 hours missing time. Now, think about how that could possibly be. You'd have to know what time it started in order to be able to figure out that we're... But anyway, that's a whole other story. But uh, these NASA scientists were discussing, and finally one of them remembered the old Bible story. And so he dug out his Bible and found the, uh, the long day of Joshua. And there's your, your missing day. And they plugged the calculations in, and they were still missing 40 minutes. And then they remembered, oh... Uh, when Hezekiah was running through his problem, he had the uh, prayed and God put the sun back 10 degrees, and that calculated in their minds to 40 minutes, which is the exact amount missing. <clears throat> we laugh at that today, but you know this that actually started in 1936. It was old by the time uh, I heard it as a young Christian, and it still once in a while pops up. It's certainly out on the internet. Uh, it's, it's simply nonsense. But those are the sorts of things that were being offered. My response was, if there isn't more to the faith than this, I need to get out of this. There's no reason for me to be a Christian. This is stupid. <clears throat> and so I, I went on a quest to find out, isn't there more to this than that? And so I, I scratched everything. I started with the idea of how, do we, how am I going to know what's true when I see it? So what's going to be my test for truth? And then systematically from there, take the question, you know, is there a God? Well, if there's evidence for God, then which God? And then if there's which God, what about all these problems that people throw out against belief in God? And I spent uh, six months to a year working through this material and digging out everything I could find on it. And I was astounded at what was there. It was, a, it's amazing. There's just a plethora of material that would uh, stand up to any criticism. And <clears throat> I started immediately, you know, sharing in the uh, student union with people and uh, uh, seeing um, cultists walking down the street, you know, on their door-to-door uh, -door knocking and stopping, pulling the car over and saying, hey, you guys are in the area. Why don't you come over to my house on Wednesday and we can talk about this. And just pursued it everywhere I saw. And the response of people outside the Christian faith was, I've never heard anything like this. Why hasn't anybody told me this? And I had conversions as a result of that. I had people who uh, left cults as a result of that. I had Again, I'm not saying this is because of my work. It's because of pointing to the truth, pointing the truth that's there, pointing to the facts that are there. 
But I would go back to the church, and church people would go, oh, why do you make it, got to make it so complicated? Just give them the simple gospel, and we don't need this stuff. And so the people that should have had my back didn't. The people who should have been my enemies were saying, wow, why hasn't anybody ever told me this before? And so I ended up doing a two-front two, two battle. Um, at, by the time I got through my apologetic survey, my evidential survey, uh, I had switched over to the Bible college to train for the ministry, and I had a professor there. And at that time, my life motto, my life verse motto was to take every thought captive to Christ. You know, I'm going to try and find everything I can that, you know, and put it under the Lordship of Christ. And at the Bible college, one of my professors said, well, you know, I think you might have a lust for knowledge, and, you, you know, you really need to uh, head off in a different direction. Um, <clears throat> but I, I stuck to it, and uh, it uh, had a secondary effect that I didn't see ahead of time, which was that a lot of people wavering on their faith, by the time they reviewed these evidence, were so convinced that it really locked them in. And the other thing I discovered is that of those people that I saw converted, some of them, you know, 50 years ago, some of them 40 years ago, 30 years ago, they're still with it. They were so convinced that they didn't waver and they stuck to it. And there's nothing like a believer who understands the force of the truth and the evidence we have for it. Too often we don't, uh, don't make that a part of our Christian instruction in churches. You know, when we were doing the E4, uh, not, not the for the um, reason for hope seminars. Uh, I remember coming across a pastor who was involved in it who didn't know what apologetics was. He's a pastor. He has no idea what apologetics is. So it's something that you'll be, you'll be amazed at if you really begin trying to sort of master the apologetics just as First Peter commands us. Um, when I was in an earlier church that I pastored at, we had, I had a guy, a friend who, uh, uh, a young man in the church who uh, decided he was going to pick up a couple courses more at college towards his degree, and he needed to fill in a, a certain requirement that allowed for the taking of a course in philosophy. So he took the course, and uh, I met with him every other day at a, at a Monday, Wednesday, and Friday course, and on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, I met with him, covered the same material from a Christian perspective, an apologetic perspective, and he went back in the class, and the professor was just astounded. <laughs> Rather than see him as an irritant, he, uh, he, he really was captivated by what was being said because he'd never heard anything about it before. He had heard a Christians in his class present Christianity, but it was something he could easily dismiss. Uh, this professor ended up coming and bringing another professor with him to uh, a Socratic forum that I started, and uh, a lot of the students that were in his classes came. Uh, we had an opportunity to present the evidence for Christianity in that he, uh, he was just astounded. He, when the guy started doing it in his class, he said, um, 
you know, this is, I've never heard this before. Where did you learn this stuff? He, and the guy said, in Sunday school. And he goes, Sunday school? You mean there's others like you? Um, because what he was hearing was something, you know, the years he'd set up there and Christians throwing things at him that were just ridiculous. He had something now that he had to deal with. And he, uh, at one point, invited the student to come to the philosophy professor's forum to teach Orthodox Christianity to these philosophy professors. I mean, uh, you know, how captivated somebody is when they actually get uh, to, to hear the case in a, in a responsible way. Well, that's enough of my story. Again, I don't point that because I'm saying I, I did everything great, look at me. It's only because you can point to the evidence that's there. You don't have to make the stuff up. You don't have to be creative. You just have to say, look, here's, here's the facts. Here's why your position doesn't hold up, and here's why my position does. And you can do it in a very conversational manner as well. Most of you have heard, and we've talked many times here, about the story of Ted out in De when we were out in Delaware and the, uh, the way he brought that guy up to the precipice of the faith so he could, uh, he could see the truth of it. And he accepted, and he's, I still hear from him once in a while, and I know Ted does, that he's out there out east, uh, you know, with the little discipleship we were able to provide, he stuck with it and kept going. Um, I'm doing a lot of umming today because I'm trying to remember <laughs> uh, stories from the past. Uh, let's, let's leave that there and move on a little bit. I want to come back to the sort of a quick review of the sort of charter uh, verse that we used for our discussion of apologetics, which is 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. <clears throat> it's a great verse we're all familiar with. Uh, perhaps we're a little too familiar with it. You know, we sort of see around it rather than actually see what it says. And so we miss applying it to our lives. But this short command has a lot uh, to take notice of. First, we didn't talk much about this, but the context of this passage is, the whole section leading up to it is suffering for doing good. The idea is Christians in, in this culture, they're starting to get persecution. And he's talking about how do you behave then in the face of persecution. And this passage, this verse, is dropped right in the middle of that. And uh, I, I think, of course, that'll become more increasingly important as we uh, see our future in America develop. We're going to be under this sort of pressure, too. And how are we going to handle it? So, um, And thinking about apologetics in that context is certainly a, an interesting concept. And then the, uh, the actual command here believe, uh, begins with a uh, prerequisite that in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, which again is kind of a, okay, how, how does this fit in with what you're saying about apologetics? You know, a little commentary might, here might help us uh, try and figure that out a little bit. Um, we think of when we see the word heart, uh, the center of emotion, 
know, the center of our subjective life. Uh, that's not the case with the biblical languages. In Hebrew, the emotions are centered in the kidneys, or even in some cases in the, uh, uh, in the bowel. <laughs> it's not in the heart. Uh, the heart is for things like uh, the mind, uh, the will, um, all, all of those sorts of things. Um, and again, the important thing is not how does the individual language define it, but just to see that it's a wider perspective than perhaps what we see. In the New Testament, you know, I, one time I was interested in seeing what this word meant, so I looked it up and looked up heart in the Bible dictionary I had, which was uh, one of the leading Bible dictionaries, and it said, uh, see mind. So I went over to mind and it said, see heart. <laughs> um, in many cases in the New Testament, they're virtually synonymous. So again, the idea here is in your, in your mind, uh, set aside Christ as Lord, sanctify him as Lord, put him in his proper place in your mind as you proceed with this task. Now, of course, the mind can be wider than that, but at the, at the very least here, if, if you even expand it out, it would be um, sort of the core of your being, the thing that makes you you, which includes your mental processes. And so if heart is being used here in a wider sense, that would mean by, in the whole core of your being, set aside Christ as Lord, sanctify him as Lord, put him on the throne. And then as a result of that, the next phrase, the central phrase of the next sentence is always be prepared. Always be prepared. Now that's, that's pretty idealistic for us. Always be prepared. Preparation, of course, means that you're not just winging it. You know, you have the training and preparation and you've thought about it and you put it together and you have an answer that would fit, that you could apply to the, the different situations. And also, always is interesting because very few of us are always prepared for anything. There's also twists that we've never seen before. But the idea is that in any situation, you should be prepared to pull out from your, your well of knowledge about the Savior and the, the evidence for the truth of the Gospels and apply it to that situation. I mean, again, it's idealistic, but so a lot of things in Scripture are idealistic. We're, we're to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Well, now, that's the aspirational goal. We, we try as the best we can in that, recognizing that we fall short and realizing ultimately our deficiencies are filled in by Christ himself. But it, this idea of preparation ends that you've thought about it, you've internalized it, you've educated yourself, and you know it well enough that you will always, in any situation, be able to use it. This is not just collecting a bunch of pat answers. The idea here is that you've worked through it and you understand. It goes on in the NIV to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And I generally like the NIV, and the, uh, the phrase and answer here is an acceptable translation but it's a bit weak for the concept behind the, the Greek. Apologia is a uh, word that generally means a reasoned case. It's a sort of, originally sort of a legal case in court when you got called up. This is the brief that you're presenting. 
um, to, to, to argue your case. Um, so think of this, uh, an answer, the answer to us is just anything off the top of our head, a glib sort of answer. That's not what he's talking about here. It really means a solid argument or a reasonable defense. And that gives us, I think, a better grasp of what's being talked about here. Make a compelling case. Not just give a few win, you know, flimsy uh, points, but to actually make a compelling case. If you attempted to think of this as one verse, one command, you know, it's not that central to anything. Um, you're, you're mistaken on that. Uh, it's not just this verse. There are other verses that talk about uh, contending for the faith and, you know, making defenses. But it not only is commands like this, but it's the verses that actually point to the method of evangelism in the early church. If you look at the book of Acts, over and over again, they're doing apologetic material in the evangelism. Look at the verbs used in the activity of, uh, activities of Acts, just in a few chapters. Acts 17, verse 2 and 3. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Acts 17, 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as the marketplace day by day to those who happened to be there. Acts 17, 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers begin to debate with him. Acts 18, 4. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. 1819, they arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. 1828, for he, this is talking about Apollos, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. 198, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Not only this, but we look at the, ref the words that are being used in reference to the conversion. <clears throat> it reflects the idea of an apologetic effort. Notice the words, Acts 17.4. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Or 18.13, this man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. So examples throughout Acts of being persuaded as a description of somebody coming to the truth. The New Testament's full of apologetics. We don't always notice it. F.F. Bruce, years ago, the great biblical scholar from England, wrote a book called The Defense of the Gospel in the New Testament. And in this, he actually goes through the books of the New Testament and shows the elements within each book that are actually an apologetic in and of themselves. These are books are arguing for the truth of Christianity in ways that deals with things like evidence and argumentation and reason. And in fact, the early church heavily delved into apologetics. In the second century, there were a group of people 
uh, different church fathers that are now called the apologists, uh, but they began writing defenses of the faith that were directed ostensibly at the Roman emperor because Christianity was being uh, persecuted. They were writing to argue that they shouldn't be persecuted because what they're doing is not anything problematic. It's just a defense of their gospel, and that's true. And we don't do anything offensive. We're not trying to undermine the government, etc. And a lot of times, uh, historians, Christian historians, will look at it and say, "Well, they didn't have much effort because the the emperor never responded to them." These were open letters. They may be addressed to the emperor, but it's for the people listening in. And the educated people begin reading it. The emperor may not have taken any any uh, interest in it. That's not the point. The point is now Christianity's entered into the dialogue of the educated populace of the Roman Empire. This is the thing you have to beat. <laughs> you know, the, the uh, paganism of the day had no arguments. It was such an irrational, erratic thing that it was, it, it just simply didn't have the case to be made. And so when Christianity comes in and says, we've got evidence, we've got reason, we've got, you know, it, the case can be made. And it started impacting the wider Roman Empire. And by the third century then, of course, it became dominant that the pagans were then trying to do apologetics to reclaim ground against Christianity. One uh, scholar, whom I don't even believe he was a Christian, who was surveying that period of time, said, the early church was able to outthink its opponents. They were able to outthink, not because of their cleverness, but because Christianity provides evidence. You know, in most religions, you're talking about a God that's off there somewhere with no evidence for him. Or the evidence is something like uh, Muhammad having a vision out in the desert somewhere. Or an angel appearing to somebody. And How do you test those sorts of things? But Christianity... God himself enters human history and makes himself accessible to the microscope of history. And we can examine that and we can look at it. It's not an abstract sort of thing. It is something that we can point to and something that has to be dealt with by the other side because we share in common ground, common ground in history. We don't necessarily share ideas of, you know, God's off in the ethereal world somewhere, but we do have some common ground in the history. Throughout church history from that point on, apologetics played a, played a major role. And uh, in the 19th century, that hit a barrier. And I'd love to talk about that, but we're already rambling on too long on this, <laughs> probably for most of you. Um, but it became popular to say, you don't need to defend the Bible. You don't need to defend it. Just preach it. That's all you need. As opposed to Peter here, who says, be ready always to give an answer. The point here was, ah, we don't need that. Just have to have an experience with Jesus, and that'll do it. Um, that it, it really is important, and I say this over and over again, to understand. If you're going to understand modern Christianity and where things went wrong, Look at the difference between the first great awakening and the second great awakening. And it's, it'll uh, be quite instructive to you. But in modern times, we've regained some of that. And indeed, some of the more effective evangelism programs have 
an apologetic element to it. Uh, James Kennedy, uh, those of you who are old enough to remember the evangelism explosion, which was a powerful way of doing evangelism that converted a lot of people across the country. They ran into the problems after the first course because too many people were bringing up objections to the faith and the original evangelism explosion didn't have any room for that. So he put together a second unit that taught the people out doing evangelism how to answer those objections and how to deal with uh, complaints against uh, the, the Christian message. Um, there were several other programs, but uh, in, in the last 50 years, uh, we've gone from very few people actually doing solid apologetics to a plethora of people. So there's no excuse for you now not <laughs> to know how to defend Christianity. I know YouTube's full of it. Uh, you know, uh, there are ministries out there that do virtually nothing but uh, approach uh, evangelism through an apologetic method. Um, it excites me. I know I'm not an excitable sort of person, you know, happy, cheerful. Uh, but <clears throat> it's, ast it, it's astounding the way it can transform your boldness in presenting the message. I know I can take the message anywhere and make the case that the other person will not adequately be able to deal with. It doesn't mean he's going to submit. You know, one of the first experiences I had when I first discovered the power of the evidence that's there, uh, I'd gotten a new job, and uh, as I started my first day there, uh, of course, everybody knew that I was going to, uh, to study to be a minister. This gal said, oh, that's interesting. You know, I'm an atheist. I said, oh, really? Why? And for the next two weeks, at every break and every uh, opportunity we had, I took her through evidence from square one all the way through the end case. And the interesting thing was at the end, she said, you know, you've convinced me this is really true. I don't have any answer for any of this. But if I became a Christian, I'd have to change my lifestyle too much, and I don't want to do that. But you see, at that point, it's no longer an apologetic problem. They understand the gospel. They understand that it's true. They refuse to submit to it. That becomes something else. You've done your task. You've brought them to that point. <clears throat> Let's look at some practical suggestions. First, I think it helps to think of apologetics as a species of evangelism. It's not something you can add on. It's actually a way of doing evangelism. It's a strategy that helps remove the intellectual doubts and answers the questions. Um, my old mentor, John Warwick Montgomery, used to talk about, imagine there's this pathway, this little roadway up to the, the cross, up to the house of salvation. Along the way, there's different barriers that have to be dealt with. Some of these barriers may be psychological, maybe. The person you're talking to, her, her father abused her as a kid. And when you talk about your heavenly father, it's, it's offensive to her. She can't get beyond that. That's dealt with on a psychological level. Um, maybe the person you're talking to is, uh, doesn't, doesn't fully understand English. How are you going to cover that? That's a translation issue that you have to deal with. There's all sorts of different barriers. But apologetics deals with those bar barriers that are questions or doubts that need to be uh,
taken out of the pathway so they can move further on. And I think that's, you know, all pictures have or, uh, places where they fall down, but I think that one's a, a pretty good example. So apologetics deals with the doubts and skepticism, the intellectual questions people have. Along that line, it is in some way unhelpful of whether you think the doubt is real or whether it's an excuse for them avoiding the faith. That's a theological question we can, we can get into, whether there's any real doubts or if it's all just rejection of God. But either way, if you deal with it, then they can't hide behind that objection or question anymore. They still have to go on and face the gospel. So the practical aspect is somewhat different. Now, it's true, some people will run you around Robin Hood's barn and not really turn out to be interested. But you have to start off assuming they're sincere and answer the question. When you get back around to the same question again, and you've already dealt with it, and they're back there again, then you know that you're just being played with. And at that point, it's, it becomes something else. But you have to start off with the idea that these are sincere doubts by people who aren't necessarily intending to uh, reject the faith. They really want to know the answer first. Second suggestion, don't create problems. Again, my old mentor, Montgomery, used to say, don't sidle up to somebody on a park bench and say, doubtless you have problems with the virgin birth. <laughs> I mean, if a person's receptive and ready for the gospel, give them the gospel. You can train him in apologetics and evidences later, but give him the gospel. But if he's, if he's got doubts that need to be dealt with, then that's the role of apologetics. All evangelism is not apologetics. Point number three, carefully choose a starting point. Again, this issue of common ground. You've got to find some point at which you can agree and then begin building your case on that. And too often we plow in as if one, side, one size fits all. But you need to sort of get, get a take on where the person's at. You know, If, if you go to uh, Somebody who has limited education, hasn't spent a good deal of time and thought, and you lay the whole Kalam cosmological argument on them, they're going to go, what? In fact, I had a, a guy I worked with one time who, again, because of my interest in biblical Christianity, said, so what do you think is the strongest argument for the existence of God? And I said, well, the, probably the strongest currently is the Kalam cosmological argument. And then I had to sort of try and explain it to him for the next, you know, hour and a half. And um, he wasn't in a position to grasp it. it the, the whole thing was too abstract for him, and he'd never thought along those lines before. But there are other forms of the argument for the existence of God that could have been used on him. Um, but because he asked me, what do you think is the more powerful one, I unfortunately uh, took him at face value. <laughs> I mean, think of this in terms of uh, the strategy there in Acts. Look at what Paul does. His, his normal process in evangelism is he goes into a new town, he goes to the synagogue, he argues with them basically over who's the Messiah. How do you know that Jesus is the Messiah? How do you know all this is true? So he argues Bible with them. Why does he argue Bible with them? They believe the Bible is the word of God. So there you go. Now the question becomes, how do we interpret that word of God? 
So he can start there. He's got, he's got a leg up there. He, of course, is doing it for a theological reason, which is God, God chose the Jews, and so the gospel goes to them first. But when he gets kicked out of the synagogue, he usually goes over to the Gentiles, the general populace of the, of the area, and he begins, in those cases, when you see it, when we see his argument developed in Acts, he starts with the creator God. Something that's general revelation, something that everybody has access to. And he argues from there, in many cases down to the resurrection, of course. But he, uh, that's, the, that's the common ground. You know, he doesn't go and present the Roman road everywhere he goes or evangelism <laughs> explosion. He listens to, or he considers where the people are, and that becomes his starting point. Uh, this is true in cult ministry today. You know, you can you treat a Jehovah's Witness different from a Mormon. A Jehovah's Witness believes the Bible is the Word of God, so it just becomes a question of whose interpretation is actually true: the Jehovah's Witness or Orthodox Christianity. And if you come to a Mormon, Mormons. Uh, attest to believing in scripture as rightly uh, translated, but in fact it's superseded by the other books within the Mormon canon. And therefore they can evade the discussion if you just leave it with only scripture. So many times with, with Mormons I start with their history and the historical thing that we share in common and compare it to the historical evidence within Christianity. So again you've got a sort of let the people talk enough that you can get an idea of, of what they're thinking and how deeply they think. If you give an academic apologetic to somebody who is not ready for it, they'll just think this is too complicated and silly for me to deal with. So you have to deal with something on a more popular level. So you have to sort of gauge that when you're talking. If you're going to pass on literature to them, make sure the literature is at the level they, they can comprehend and work with. All right, um, number four. Modern discourse is about getting mad when you hear something that you disagree with. <laughs> right? So make sure you don't do that. <laughs> Let the person have his say. There's no reason for you to get upset. You know, God's big enough that his little accusations against God are not going to tumble God off his throne anywhere. So your task is to calmly refute what's being said and give the correct evidence. If you lose your temper, you're not going to be able to think clearly. And your, di and your discourse with them will, f will fall apart rapidly. And certainly the effectiveness of what you're saying will diminish because you're not thinking straight. You've got blood pumping in your head and you're angry and you're, you know, you're responding and, you know, the evidence is sufficient. You know, we don't need to get upset and concerned. Just stick to the evidence. Point to the facts. Number five, questions are a great strategy always. You know, the advantage of questions is it gives the other person a chance to talk, which, of course, gives you, to be a little loose with phrases here, gives you enough rope to hang themselves. <laughs> you know, they... Uh, uh, but, but you can sort of zero in on your, your target. But also, by asking questions, you aren't coming from, you know, you're not Moses giving the Ten Commandments. 
because modern man also resents somebody trying to tell them what's true and what isn't true. So by asking questions, you're forcing them to come to a conclusion, and then you can provide additional information to help clarify it in a way that's non-threatening. It's not, uh, you listen to me because I know what I'm talking about. Less threatening, less arrogant to the other person. So it's a very effective tool. Six, also be aware that apologetics is not going to convert everyone. You know, I've already talked about that a little bit, but sometimes people, when they discover it, it's so powerful to them, they think, oh, go out and just steamroll everybody. The fact is, um, it helps you make the most effective case you can make, but you're not going to win everybody. Some people, you know, again, they have other reasons for doubt outside of the intellectual ones. And that's something that needs to be dealt with by something else. So, you know, don't, don't do, again, uh, the assumption that, you know, because it's been so powerful to me, it's going to convince everybody. Number seven, if you're starting out learning apologetics, you don't need to try and know everything. I know it says always be prepared to give a reason. That's what you're headed for. But at the start, try and pick off a chunk, an argument you like, and learn that and then add another one to it, and then add more evidence to that. Add, and that way you're not overwhelmed at the start, but you can get a grasp on. And, and the, the, the key to all this is not just to memorize facts, but to also internalize it, to understand it at, from your own perspective and how it works and how effective it is. Um, the, the fact is most people have and this has been discovered through different surveys, but most people have about 10 different questions that they throw against Christianity in an apologetic way. If you can master those, you'll get the majority of the things. Uh, so if you can prepare for those. Um, but don't just learn the pat answers. Again, internalize and make them your own. You'll be more convincing if you do that. If you're just repeating somebody else's words... But if it's become part of your, you know, your vocabulary and your understanding, then it's going to be more powerful for others. Number eight, you don't have to be the smartest person in the world to do apologetics. I'll let you in on a secret. The reason you don't have to, again, is that this isn't stuff that you haven't be really intellectually creative to come up with something. You just have to know the facts and be able to present them in an effective way. So... It doesn't depend on my smarts. It depends on God's smarts. He put this all together. All I have to do is point to what he did. You understand the difference? You know, you, you don't get freaked out. Oh, I'm not sure I'm up to the task. You are up to the task because all you have to do is point to what God has already done. Number nine, it's always helpful to keep a supply of uh, solid, compelling books and articles you can hand out to people. You know, if, if uh, they need supplemental material, have a stack of them ready. You know, one of the interesting stories, a guy by the name of Herman, Herman John Eckelman. Anybody ever heard of him? He was a NASA scientist, but he was an ardent Christian who was also a Reformed pastor. And he was at Cornell as a student, and his goal in every spare moment he had was to evangelize the students there. And this is right after World War II, so there are all these uh, cinder block buildings for dormitories. And one of the advantages of the upper class was they got to move into the old 
structures, houses, and, and, and big dorms that were built in earlier days that were just elaborate and wonderful. Eckelman refused to advance to this, the senior dorms or the, because he wanted to stay where the freshmen are coming in so he could hit every one of them that came in with uh, the gospel. And he had in his room stacks of the best apologetics books that had come out, and he was constantly handing them out to students after having dialogue with them. Well, here, see if you find something more interesting in here, you know, or if you want to pursue it, I've got this book on this. And uh, John Warwick Montgomery came there as a student, and he, he, he uh, started pestering John from the get-go. John had grown up in a liberal church and didn't think much about Christianity at all. And he said, oh, you're a philosophy major. You know, philosophy has, deals with a lot of the same things that religion does. So, you know, have you ever considered the evidence for Christianity? And, and Montgomery's like, well, I'm not really interested in that. And he'd say, well, why not? As a philosopher, aren't you interested in wisdom and interacting with the ideas that are out there? You really need to take a look at this. In fact, he would follow him into the men's restroom and stand at the doorway <laughs> saying, well, you know, there's all this evidence for Jesus Christ, and let me show you what's you know. And it convinced Montgomery, as it convinced a number of other people that are influential in the Christian world today, in his time there. So a guy who, you know, we don't know, we don't celebrate, influenced a whole slew of young pastors who weren't going to go into the pastor at all, but so gave such a compelling presentation of Christianity that they embraced it and went on. Montgomery became one of the great uh, 20th century apologists and uh, has an, had an effective ministry, not just in America and Europe, but uh, through his legal work in uh, the, the Middle East, uh, the Orient, um, He's a guy now who, you know, he's uh, been accepted and argued before the Bar of the United States, before the International Human Rights Commission in Europe, and uh, he's been able to defend Christians uh, in, in places like that. So, you know, you don't know when you do this, your enthusiasm and your understanding of what's going on might be contagious. How are we doing on time? Can't see the clock. I think we're about ready to. Let me just give a couple more real quick ones. One, when you're dealing with con contradictions or objections, you don't have to do systematic theology. And what I mean by this is you don't have to give the one final answer you think is correct on that. What you have to show is that there's evidence, there's ways to look at the evidence that clearly would take care of that contradiction or take care of that objection. And the fact that there are ways to do it means it doesn't absolutely stand as an objection. You can't use that as your excuse to not consider Christianity. And you see this a lot on the issue of uh, young earth, old earth, and creation. You know, are you going to insist that the person share your specific view of early stages of Genesis? Or are you going to say, well, Maybe I believe in a 6,000-year-old creation, but there's all sorts of Christians who don't. Let me give you some of those books, and you can take a read for them and see if that doesn't take care of it. Well, rather than insist that they must believe exactly what you believe on that, don't keep someone out of the kingdom because you think your position is the best of the positions. Number 11, 
Apologetics is not a slight on the work of the Holy Spirit. We hear that a lot. Well, it's the Holy Spirit that converts them. Absolutely. But you could say that about evangelism, too. It's the Holy Spirit that draws them in. That doesn't mean we don't do evangelism. Just as in 1 Peter here, it doesn't mean, the Holy Spirit doesn't mean there that we shouldn't be defending the faith. It's telling us to. So where modern Christianity got that is, is a puzzlement. It certainly doesn't follow from the words of Scripture. Great B.B. Warfield, the great Princetonian scholar, the great defender of biblical inerrancy, he addressed this in terms of apologetics at one point. He said, though faith is a gift of God, it does not in the least follow that the faith which God gives is an irrational faith. That is, a faith without cognizable ground and right reason. We believe in Christ because it is rational to believe in him, not even though it be irrational. The action of the Holy Spirit in giving faith is not apart from evidence, but along with the evidence, and in the first instance, consists in preparing the soul for the reception of the evidence. There's no inconsistency here. And why don't we then engage in apologetics more? Why aren't we out there arguing, discussing, and presenting our case to unbelievers? You know, there's a whole list of them. There's laziness, there's disobedience, there's the fact that most of us don't care for the loss. You know, when I was a kid, you know, in order to be anybody in the church, you were expected to go into the ministry or the mission field. And everywhere you were encouraged to get out and knock, knock on doors and do door-to-door evangelism. And then we realized that those aren't necessarily so effective in the, in the modern age. And so we went to lifestyle evangelism. People will see by our lifestyle and be drawn in. The fact is that just was an excuse for Christians not to go out and talk about Christ at all. You know, it made us feel good. Oh, yeah, people are seeing my life, and that's converting them to Christ. But the fact is we were just using it as an excuse to escape going out and doing anything. None of these sorts of things should keep us from the work at hand. And again, referring to, to a quote from B.B. Warfield, the great defender of the faith, it is the distinction of Christianity that has... It, let me start over. It is the distinction of Christianity that it has come into the world clothed with a mission to reason its way to dominion. Have a case that takes the, com- the competition by storm, that lean- pushes back the dominion of Satan. It is the distinction of Christianity that it has come into the world clothed with a mission to reason its way to dominion. Other religions may appeal to the sword or seek some other way to propagate themselves. Christianity makes its appeal to right reason, and it stands out among all religions, therefore, as distinctively the apologetic religion. When we reduce it down to just mere testimony or mere evangelism technique, we are diminishing that great difference between Christianity and every other religion. It's true, and therefore we can appeal to the reason and to the evidence for it. 
If you reduce it down to just you got to believe, just go ahead, or I, I uh, tried Jesus, it worked for me, you should try him too. We're just reducing it down to the level of every other false religion in the world. We need to hold on to the distinction that God has given us. This is true, and it's demonstrably true. So may God help us as we pursue that task. Is somebody closing? Okay. Thanks, Denny. I think Denny's been a great resource to all of us. I first ran into him maybe 35, 40 years ago, something like that. I did not go through a crisis of faith, but I started to kind of wonder if there was any substance to believing and and um, went into his library, and his whole wall was full of books, and that's how I got started in my interest. He kept loaning me books, and I, I really enjoyed them. Uh, up to that time, my whole apologetic was could be summed up in a popular song that our church sang all the time. I think the title of it, He Lives, He Lives. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. That was the whole, that was it. <laughs> and, um, of course, Denny thought that there'd be more to it than that, so... <laughs> I appreciate his the resources and um, his willingness to help me not help not just me personally but even our whole church here. So let's stand and um, this actually concludes our series at least this session of um, apologetics. Next week we will uh, Dave will be sharing with us uh, picking up on the book of Romans again, continuing that series. So our meeting, we're going to try to meet, let's say, ten meet, about 10 minutes after we dismiss here. If we can meet in the library, that'd be helpful. And um, if you could go back there so we don't have to run around chasing you down, that'd be great. And if you're wondering whether, you're, whether you should go to this meeting or not, you should have received an email. So if you get that email, then um, hopefully you'll, you'll be able to come. And I'll close with these words. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, do everything in love. And those words you are dismissed, go in Christ's name, enjoy each other and serve each other in love.